audio tales. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the blasted heat, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. Welcome, Floor of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the great old ones. The Barn Elves An honest Hampshire farmer was sore distressed by the nightly unsettling of his barn. However, straightly, overnight, he laid his sheaves on the threshing floor for the application of the morning's flail. When morning came, all was topsy-turvy, higgledy-piggledy, though the door remained locked, and there was no sign whatever of irregular entry. Resolved to find out who played him these mischievous pranks, Hodge couched himself one night deeply among the sheaves and watched for the enemy. At length, midnight arrived. The barn was illuminated as if by moonbeams of wonderful brightness, and through the keyhole came thousands of elves, the most diminutive that could be imagined. They immediately began their gambols among the straw, which was soon in the most admired disorder. Hodge wondered, but interfered not. But at last, the supernatural thieves began to busy themselves in a way still less to his taste, for each elf set about conveying the crop away, a straw at a time, with astonishing activity and perseverance. The keyhole was still their port of egress and regress, and it resembled the aperture of a beehive on a sunny day in June. The farmer was rather annoyed at seeing his grain vanish in this fashion, when one of the fairies, while hard at work, said to another, in the tiniest voice that ever was heard, I wet! You wet? I sweat. Do you sweat? Hodge could contain himself no longer. He leapt out, crying, The deuce sweat ye! Let me get among ye! The fairies all flew away so frightened that they never disturbed the barn any more. Legends of King Arthur Immemorial tradition has asserted that King Arthur, his Queen Guinevere, court of lords and ladies, and his hounds, were enchanted in some cave of the crags, or in a hall below the castle of sewing shields. 
and would continue entranced there till someone should first blow a bugle horn that lay on a table near the entrance into the hall, and then, with the sword of stone, cut a garter, also placed there beside it. But none had ever heard where the entrance to this enchanted hall was, till a farmer at Sewing Shields, about fifty years since, was sitting knitting on the ruins of the castle, and his clue fell and ran downwards through a bush of briars and nettles, as he supposed, into a deep subterranean passage. Full in the faith that the entrance into King Arthur's hall was now discovered, he cleared the briary portal of its weeds and rubbish, and entering a vaulted passage followed, in his darkling way, the web of his clue. The floor was infested with toads and lizards, and the dark wings of bats, disturbed by his unhallowed intrusion, flitted fearfully around him. At length his sinking faith was strengthened by a dim, distant light, which, as he advanced, grew gradually lighter, till, all at once, he entered a vast and vaulted hall, in the center of which a fire without fuel, from a broad crevice in the floor, blazed with a high and lambent flame that showed all the carved walls and fretted roof and the monarch and his queen and court reposing around in a theater of thrones and costly couches. On the floor, beyond the fire, lay the faithful and deep-toned pack of thirty couple of hounds, and on the table before it the spell-dissolving horn, sword, and garter. The farmer reverently but firmly grasped the sword, and as he drew it leisurely from its rusty scabbard, the eyes of the monarch and his courtiers began to open, and they rose till they sat upright. He cut the garter, and as the sword was being slowly sheathed, the spell assumed its ancient power, and they all gradually sank to rest, but not before the monarch lifted up his eyes and hands and exclaimed, Oh, woe betide that evil day on which this witless wight was born, who drew the sword, the garter cut, but never blew the bugle horn. Of this favorite tradition, the most remarkable variation is respecting the place where the farmer descended. Some say that after the king's denunciation, terror brought on loss of memory, and the farmer was unable to give any correct account of his adventure or the place where it occurred. All agree that Mrs. Spearman, the wife of another and more recent occupier of the estate, had a dream in which she saw a rich hoard of treasure among the ruins of the castle, and that for many days together she stood over workmen employed in searching for it, but without success. Another version of the story has less of the pomp of the sceptered state than the preceding and has evidently sprung from a baser original, but its verity is not the less to be depended upon. A shepherd one day, in quest of a strayed sheep on the crags, had his attention aroused by the scene around him assuming an appearance he had never before witnessed. There seemed to be about it a more than wanted vividness, and such a deep solemnity hung over its aspect that its features became, as it were, palpably impressed upon his mind. While he was musing upon this unexpected occurrence, his steps were arrested by a ball of thread. This he laid hold of, 
and pursuing the path it pointed out, found it led into a cavern, in the recesses of which, as the guiding line used by miners in their explorations of devious passages, it appeared to lose itself. As he approached, he felt perforce constrained to follow the strange conductor that had so marvelously come into his hands. After passing through a long and dreary vestibule, he entered into an apartment in the interior. An immense fire blazed on the hearth and cast its broad flashes with a wild, unearthly glare to the remotest corner of the chamber. Over it was placed a huge cauldron, as if preparations were being made for a feast on an extensive scale. Two hounds lay couchant on either side of the fireplace, in the stillness of unbroken slumber. The only remarkable piece of furniture in the apartment was a table covered with green cloth. At the head of the table, a being, considerably advanced in years, of a dignified mien, and clad in the habiliments of war, sat, as it were, fast asleep in an armchair. At the other end of the table lay a horn and a sword. Notwithstanding these signs of life, there prevailed a dead silence throughout the chamber, the very feeling of which made the shepherd reflect that he had advanced far beyond the limits of human experience, and that he was now in the presence of objects that belonged more to death than to life. The very idea made his flesh creep. He, however, had sufficient fortitude to advance to the table and lift the horn. The hounds pricked up their ears most fearfully, and the grisly veteran started up on his elbow, and raising his half-unwilling eyes, told the staggered hind that if he would blow the horn and draw the sword, he would confer upon him the honors of knighthood to last through time. Such unheard-of dignities, from a source so ghastly, either met with no appreciation from the awe-stricken swain, or the terror of finding himself alone in the company. It might be of malignant phantoms, who were only tempting him to his ruin, became too urgent to be resisted, and therefore, proposing to divide the peril with a comrade, he groped his darkling way, as best his quaking limbs could support him, back to the blessed daylight. On his return, with a reinforcement of strength and courage, all traces of the former scene had disappeared. The crags presented their usual cheerful and quiet aspect, and every vestige of the opening of a cavern was obliterated. Thus failed another of the repeated opportunities for releasing the spell-bound King of Britain from the charmed sleep of ages. Within his rocky chamber he still sleeps on, as tradition tells, till the appointed hour, or if invited by his enchantress to participate in the illusions of the fairy festival, it has charms for him no longer. Wasted with care, he sits beside her, the banquet untasted, the pageantry unmasked, by constraint her guest, and from his native land withheld, by sad necessity. Silky. About the commencement of the present century, the inhabitants of the quiet village of Blackheadon, near Stamfordham, and all of its vicinity, who lived, as most of the villagers do, 
with all possible harmony amongst themselves, and relishing no more external disturbance than was consistent with their gentle and sequestered mode of existence, were dreadfully annoyed by the pranks of a preternatural being called Silky. This name it had obtained from its manifesting a marked predilection to make itself visible in the semblance of a female dressed in silk. Many a time, when one of the more timorous of the community had a night journey to perform, have they unawares and invisibly been dogged and watched by this spectral tormentor, who, at the dreariest part of the road, the most suitable for thrilling surprises, would suddenly break forth in dazzling splendour. If the person happened to be on horseback, a sort of exercise for which she evinced a strong partiality, she would unexpectedly seat herself behind, rattling in her silks. There, after enjoying a comfortable ride, with instantaneous abruptness, she would, like a thing destitute of continuity, dissolve away, and become incorporate with the nocturnal shades, leaving the bewildered horseman in blank amazement. At Belsay, some two or three miles from Blackheadon, she had a favourite resort. This was a romantic crag, finely studded with trees, under the gloomy umbrage of which, like one forlorn, she loved to wander all the livelong night. Here often has the belated peasant, with awe-stricken vision, beheld her dimly through the sombre twilight, as if engaged in splitting great stones, or hewing with many a repeated stroke some stately monarch of the grove. While he thus stood and gazed, and listened to intimations, impossible to be misapprehended, of the dread reality of that mysterious being, concerning whom so various conjunctures were awake, all at once, excited by that wondrous agency, he would hear the howling of a restless tempest rushing through the woodland, the branches creaking in violent concussion, or rent into pieces by the impetuous fury of the blast, while, to the eye, not a leaf was seen to quiver, or a pensile spray to bend. The bottom of this crag is washed by a picturesque lake or fish-pond, at whose outlet is a waterfall, over which a venerable tree, sweeping its leafy arms, adds impressiveness to the scene. Amid the complicated and contorted limbs of this tree, Silky possessed a rude chair, where she was wont, in her moody moments, to sit, wind-rocked, enjoying the rustling of the storm in the dark woods or the gush of the cascade. The tree, so consecrated in the sympathies and terrors of the people of the vicinity, has been reserved. Though now, 1842, no longer tenanted by its aerial visitant, it yet spreads majestically its time-hallowed canopy over the spot, awakening in the love-first rustic, when the winter's wind waves gusty and sonorous through its leafless boughs, the soul-harrowing recollection of the exploits of the ancient fay.
but in the springtime, beautiful with the full-flushed verdure of that exuberant season, recipient of the kindling emotions of reverence of affection. It still bears the name of Silky's Seat, in memory of its once wonderful occupant. Silky exercised a marvellous influence over the brute creation. Horses, which indisputably possess a discernment of spirits superior to that of man, and are more sharp-sighted in the dark, were in an extraordinary degree sensitive of her presence and control. Having once perceived the effects of her power, she seems to have had a perverse pleasure in meddling with and arresting those poor defenceless animals, while engaged in the most exemplary performance of their labours. When this misfortune occurred, there was no remedy that brute force could devise. Expostulation, soothing, whipping, and kicking were all exerted in vain to make the restive beast resume the proper and intended direction. The ultimate resource, unless it be the whim of Silky to revoke the spell, was the magic-dispelling witchwood, which, it is satisfactory to learn, was of unfailing efficacy. One poor white, a farm servant, was once the selected victim of her mischievous frolics. He had to go to a colliery at some distance, for coals, and it was late in the evening before he could return. Silky, with spirit-like prescience, having intimation of the circumstance, waylaid him at a bridge, a ghastly, ghost-alluring edifice, since called Silky's Brig. Lying a little to the south of Blackheadon, on the road between that place and Stamfordham, just as he had arrived at the height of that bad eminence, the keystone, horses and cart became fixed and immovable as fate. In that melancholy plight might both man and horses have continued, quaking and sweating and paralysed, till the morning light had thrown around them its mantle of protection. Had not a neighbour's servant come to the rescue, who opportunely carried some of the potent witchwood, mountain ash, about his person. On arrival of this seasonable aid, the perplexed driver rallied his scattered senses, and the helpless animals, being duly seasoned after the fashion prescribed on such occasions, he had the heartfelt satisfaction of seeing them apply themselves, with the customary alacrity, to the draught. The charm was effectually overcome, and in a short time both the man and the coals reached home in safety. Ever afterwards, however, as long as he lived, he took the precaution of rendering himself spellproof by being furnished with a sufficient quantity of witchwood, being by no means disposed that Silky should a second time amuse herself at his expense and that of his team. She was wayward and capricious. Sometimes she installed herself in the office of that old familiar La, Brownie, but with characteristic misdirection 
in a manner exactly the reverse of that useful species of hobgoblin. Here, it may be remarked that, throughout her disembodied career, she can scarcely be said to have performed one benevolent action for the sake of its moral qualities. She had, from first to last, a perpetual latent hankering for mischief, and gloried in withering surprises and unforeseen movements. As is customary with that sturdy fairy, as she is designated by the great English lexicographer, her works were performed at night, or between the hours of sunset and day-dawn. If the good old dames had thoroughly cleaned their houses, which country people make a practice of doing, especially on Saturdays, so that they may have a comfortable and decent appearance on the Sabbath day, after they have retired to rest, Silky would silently turn everything topsy-turvy, and the morning presented a scene of indescribable confusion. On the contrary, if the house had been left in a disorderly state, a plan which the folk generally find it best to adopt, everything would be arranged with the greatest nicety. At length, a term had arrived to her erratic course, and both she and the peaceably disposed inhabitants whom she disquieted obtained the repose so long mutually desired. She abruptly disappeared. It has long been surmised, by those who paid attention to those dark matters, that she was the troubled phantom of some person who had died very miserable, in consequence of having great treasure, which, before being taken by her mortal agony, had not been disclosed, and on that account Silky could not rest in her grave. About the period referred to, a domestic female servant, being alone in one of the rooms of a house in Blackheadon, was frightfully alarmed by the ceiling above, suddenly giving way, and from it there dropped, with a prodigious clash, something quite black, shapeless, and uncouth. The servant did not stop to scrutinise an object so hideous and startling, but fled to her mistress, screaming at the pitch of her voice, "'The devil's in the house! The devil's in the house! He's come through the ceiling!' With this terrible announcement, the whole family was speedily convoked, and great was the consternation at the idea of the foe of mankind being amongst them in visible form. In this appalling extremity, a considerable time elapsed before anyone could brace up the courage to face the enemy, or be prevailed on to go and inspect the cause of their alarm. At last, the mistress, who chanced to be the most stout-hearted, ventured into the room, when, instead of the personage, on account of whom such awful apprehensions were entertained, a great dog or calfskin lay on the floor, sufficiently black and uncomely, but filled with gold. After this, Silky was never more heard of. After this, Silky was never more heard or seen. Her destiny was accomplished, her spirit laid, and now she sleeps with her ancestors. End of section 27 End of Folklore and Legends 
English by Charles John Tibbetts. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the blasted heat, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black clock audio on instagram twitter and facebook and black clock audio tales on youtube welcome to black clock audio tales check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com edited by daniel spitzer music by kevin mcleod welcome core of great britain join us at the end of the month when we talk about the great old one